episode of Disrupt, a podcast of the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. Today on the podcast, I am joined by Derek Borkowski, founder and chief executive officer of Pearls, a novel drug information platform. Derek is a pharmacist and full-stack software engineer with a background in digital health, community practice, and the pharmaceutical industry. Listen as we hear his story of taking pearls from an idea to a growing drug information resource for pharmacists and other providers. Welcome back to this episode of Disrupt. I'm your host, Justin Cole, and I am excited about our conversation with Derek Borkowski today, CEO of Pearls. So welcome to the podcast, Derek, and thanks for joining us here in the studio. Thanks, Justin. I appreciate it. And it's uh, wonderful to be here on the beautiful Cedarville University campus. Great. Well, you've already talked to some of our students today, and we're excited to continue that conversation here on the podcast. So I'd love to just get started with asking you to tell us a bit more about yourself, like where you're from and, and what you do. Yeah, just to set the stage. So I, um, I, I'm from Minnesota, so I uh, currently reside in Minneapolis, and that's where I run my business and where me and my, me and my wife live. Um, but I'm originally from um, uh, Winona, Minnesota, which is a rural town about two hours south of the Twin Cities metro area, um, just to get talking about how I got into pharmacy. So my mom uh, worked in a outpatient community pharmacy in our hometown. And so honestly, you know, from as early as I can remember, I remember visiting her at work. But I think really around middle school is when for me, I would you know visit my mom at work and the pharmacist she worked with her great. And I thought the work that they were doing there was really impactful. And I remember as early as yeah, middle school thinking, I think I want to be a pharmacist. And, you know, at that time, you know, the community outpatient setting was my whole conception of what, you know, being a pharmacist was. And so that, that though, was honestly, to, to kind of speed things up a little bit, you know, I pretty much set myself up. I picked my classes in high school um, and in undergrad because I wanted to go to the University of Minnesota Pharmacy School because that's where one of, that's where both of my mom's pharmacists that she worked with went and it was the nearest school. And so I pictured myself going there and becoming a community pharmacist. And um, I'll, I'll get a little bit into how I got to, you know, the how I fell backwards and sideways into you know, building the company I am now. Um, but essentially, one thing I'd like to say is, you know, if I one thing I learned in pharmacy schools, you know, if I had multiple lives to live right now simultaneously, I'd be doing multiple of them in different pharmacy careers. And even right now, the, the first the first next life I would be doing simultaneously is practicing community pharmacy, which I did do for a bit after school. Um, but anyway, that's a little bit of background on my journey to pharmacy. Oh, that's great. I, we have some things in common. I also grew up in a family that had pharmacists, and from a very early age, that was where I felt like I was headed. So that's a fun part of the story. All right, so before we ask some more questions about Pearls itself, and by the way, for our listeners, that's spelled P-Y-R-L-S. So if you go Google it, you can find it really quickly. I just want to ask, what is Pearls? How do you sum that up? What is the product and what is your company? Yeah, so just to put it really simply, so Pearls is a website and a mobile app um, for clinicians and student clinicians to look up information about drugs. And, you know, you can think just like Micromedics or Lexicomp or those types of products. Pearls is a little bit different um, in its functionality and content set than those at the present time, but trying to build a product in that space and be inspired by those great products is um, how Pearls got started. The name, of course, is a pun on clinical pearls. And I was just telling the students here 
you know, how do we wind up on the way that we spell it, P-Y-R-L-S, and well, that's because that, that's what domain was available. So <laughs> per, pearls spelled like us.com, you know, just kind of like Lyft and Uber, you know, that's that's how we, uh, th that domain was available. And so in a nutshell, that's what the product is. Yeah. Well, the name is fascinating because it makes it memorable, right? Because we all have a conception of what a physical pearl is. And yet just that little change in how it's spelled, it cements it in your mind. So I, anyway, I think that's fascinating and it worked out really for you guys well. So what inspired you to create Pearls and what problem do you feel like it solves for clinicians? Yeah, you know, actually a, a lot of the, the sales calls I have with universities or health systems, I'll be talking to, you know, someone who's typically a drug information expert and it's, many times it's their first time maybe hearing about our product. And I, I will pose the question because I, I don't want to, you know, one of the um, tactics I've you know learned with sales is that you want to try and address the biggest concern that, you know, a buyer may have. And so I'll say, you know, does the world need another drug reference? You know, really, do we, do we actually need one? Cause I, I certainly wasn't thinking about if we did or not, you know, when I started building this, um, I, I started, you know, I, I can talk a little bit more about how I got into the type of skill sets I developed, but in a nutshell, by the time I was a third year in pharmacy school, I had had no programming experience or coding or, you know, I liked new gadgets, but I, I had not had any, you know, formal education in software engineering. I'd never written a line of code until an internship I did the summer before my third year sort of inspired me to start learning. And so fast forward, when I was a fourth year pharmacy student, um, this is when I can pinpoint when the genesis of Pearls, the product today started being built. I, when I was on my community pharmacy advanced practice experience, I was in an independent pharmacy where they had a really great setup where the student myself it was my job to counsel every single patient that came into that pharmacy on their new medications. And so I had a station for myself, you know, that, that the pharmacy set up that I would, so I would use the drug references that our school gave us and that this, and that that pharmacy used. And I would prepare for each counseling session by reviewing the drug or multiple drugs that the patients were picking up inside of those references. And my task was, you know, what, trying to figure out what are the key points I want to educate this patient on to make sure that they go home feeling well-educated on the most important parts of getting their therapy. And so I would do this. I would look up, you know, whatever new medication it was. And I would still, though, find myself asking my preceptor, hey, I just read you know, everything I can about this as fast as I can, but now I'm overwhelmed with what are the key things I should try and educate this patient on? What should I, what are the key counseling points? And my preceptor would tell me, and I'd be like, great. Oh, why couldn't I have, you know, I'd be frustrated. Why couldn't I have figured that out for myself? And so actually what, how Pearls began was I thought to myself, maybe I can get better at my website coding skills and my counseling skills by making a website for just myself that I'm keeping track of the counseling points that I'm learning are the most important to teach my patient. And so that was how Pearls was born. It was wanting to build a, just a better reference for myself for key counseling points. But then actually the other, so this is where I'll get into a little bit about what's different about Pearls is the other key bit of information that as, as that student and new practitioner, I couldn't quickly parse for myself in existing tertiary references is what is the place in therapy of this drug? So I, I would, let's just take like metformin. You know, I would look up the metformin monograph in name your, you know, incumbent drug reference, and you could read everything about it. I could read its indication, but nowhere did it tell me if that drug was first line or second line therapy, which is something that I wanted to know quickly when I was assessing the patient's medication list. You know, is this the right drug for them to be on now? And so the other 
clinical pearl that we started to capture for each drug in our product was the, the key points on place and therapy from guideline recommendations. And so in a nutshell, what I like to say that Pearls does differently than other drug references is where other drug references tell you everything about the drug, Pearls tells you how to use the drug. Here's how to counsel the patient. Here's where its place in therapy is um, for you. And it's quickly served to you through our drug pages. And we built, you know, other visual and chart monographs. We tried to, you know, expand upon, you know, traditional drug information. Um, and so in a nutshell, that's, uh, you know, what, what differentiates us, but um, you know, we're certainly you know, on, standing on the shoulder of giants of other great products in, in the space. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to hear a little bit more, too, from you about how the content features and maybe even the user experience is designed from your standpoint. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I think differentiates us from the beginning is, you know, j just to actually draw an analogy to a different um, technology product. When website development first came, you know, websites first started becoming, you know, broadly adopted in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so every single product and service and company, you know, said, well, we need a website. And so, well, well what should our website look like? Well, let's just take something like actually the newspaper. So newspapers started coming online. And, well, what should our newspaper website look like? Well, the most obvious answer is, you know, it should probably just, you can make it look like the newspaper. Let's put the content in the middle and let's put the advertisements around the side. And that's how, you know, the first, the first websites essentially were, dig, were digital recreations of the physical, um, you know, product. And so that's how drug references, you know, became digital in their first place too. You know, the existing digital drug references are digital versions of what were physical books. And so going back to the website analogy, one of the biggest innovations in the way that digital media is consumed, you know, multiple people probably did this, but the person or the company that made this broadly adopted was Facebook. They first um, made the news feed a, a way that people consume content. And, and this might be way too early for some of our, you know, listeners right now, but when Facebook changed to making the news feed the way that you consumed content, everyone lost their minds. Everyone was like, oh, I don't want to see this. Like, why is it automatically feeding me this content in this continuous scrolling method? Um, but, it, you know, quickly it became the norm because, you know, the, the ability to have an infinite scroll of media is something that wasn't immediately created because it wasn't possible in the physical space. And so it was conceived, it was, it's a digitally native experience. And so with Pearls, we actually took that approach to, well, what would a digitally native drug reference look like? And so we actually built our interface. You know, if you pull up a, per, a drug page on the, in the Pearls app or on the website, the way that the buttons are arranged is in our mind with the most intuitive way that a end user would want to quickly look up key information places for their workflow. So there's a, there's a prominent button arranged in a wheel for the counseling points and the clinical points and the dosing points. And so we started with this in the way that we present the information after you go into those sections too, we actually built the interface before we curated the content. And so that actually made it really hard in the beginning where, you know, this is something we can get into as well, but you know, where, where does all the content come from? My first thought was that, you know, it's going to be impossible for us to make our own database of drug information because there's just so much knowledge. So we're going to have to go license someone else's content and put it, you know, into our product. And so we actually tried to do that. I, I actually spent six months trying to wrangle the FDA's openly available data files, but I couldn't 
create a scalable process to curate their data into the quick and you know reusable ways that we wanted to present them in our interface. So we actually started, you know, our, our in-house team built out our monographs when we wrote the content and curated it ourselves so that we could present it in a way that fit into the digitally native interface that we first built. Um, so that, and that's continued to be when we think about features, we try and think what, you know, what would be, what's the, what's, what, what is digital, not necessarily forcing it to be digital, but what is, what does digital allow us to do? And are we, are we making sure that we explore all of those possibilities um, as we set out to create, you know, a great user experience? Oh, that's great. And uh, I think it, it shows why Pearls has really become, a, from the people that I've heard feedback from, a user-friendly approach, which is, which is great. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about something you just mentioned, and that is how do you incorporate user feedback and suggestions to improve or expand what Pearls is doing? Yeah, that's super important because one of, you know, if I were to compare, so the first version of Pearls because we started building the database from scratch, when we launched Pearls in the beginning, we only had a few hundred drug monographs. And we've since, you know, we, well, when we first launched the product on January 1st, 2020, we had about 100, I think we had 108 drug monographs. And, you know, now we have a little over 800 and all of our monographs are significantly longer than they were at the time as well. And so, you know, where do you, where do you start and who are you building for? is um, something that we keep in mind as we take feedback to this day. So just to talk a little bit about the evolution of the product and our content and how we incorporate feedback now, Pearls was being built for myself, the community pharmacy APPE student. And then actually when I turned it into a business a few years later after that moment when I was first building it, I was working at Walgreens as a community pharmacist. And so anytime you're building something new, oftentimes it's better to try and make 10 I think a misconception is that it's a misconception is that your your product needs to immediately make everybody love it. But that's often where you end up with new products and services that only make, they make everybody somewhat happy. And so then no one actually fully adopts your new product. So we wanted to focus in really tightly on one, I'll call it ideal customer profile. We'll call it an ICP. It's an, as a you know phrase in product development. And so our, we had to ask ourselves, what's our ideal customer profile? Let's draw a dartboard. Who's at the who's at the who's the bullseye user, and then and then and then also who's the next rungs out. And so our bullseye user was essentially the community for the APPE student or the new practitioner, which is who I was at the time I was building this in outpatient settings. So the first drugs we added was the fast movers rack on you know at, at Walgreens. Yeah, that, that was makes sense. And and we've been building out since there. What what does that user need next? So we've been taking feedback since the very beginning. And so I remember very early on getting users say, hey, I work in an oncology clinic and where can you add those drugs? And we had to tell ourselves, oh, well, thank you. know, first off, it's as a new as a new founder of a product, you're like, I can't believe this person's using my product. So I want to make, you know, you want to drop everything and make them happy. And I, and I think we did try and do that with some of our early users. But then we quickly realized that we didn't have enough bandwidth to go in all of the directions of the different feedback we were getting. And so we needed to just go back and say to ourselves again, how do we, who is our ideal customer profile and how do we build, how, how do we build a 10 out of 10 experience for them and then, exp, and then, and then build out from there. So, you know, again, the, I would say in the beginning, the ideal customer profile we knew was that, that profile I just mentioned. And so we've wanted, we, we've essentially prioritized that, the, that ideal customer profile and then have been subsequently building out, like actually we, you know, just 
and, and we've and we've again we've I, I would say we've not I'm not gonna say we've done things perfectly. We've um you know we've gotten distracted. We've went down side quests that we shouldn't have. But for the most part, we've we have at this point have a pretty um good system in place where like that for example that oncology pharmacist that's that's who we're going to be getting to next and we've known that for a while that we're essentially just moving outwards from the most commonly seen medications in the outpatient setting and then you know in the last six months we've rolled out the most commonly seen medications in the inpatient setting and now we're rolling out specialty and more um of the um over-the-counter and herbal supplement products and so it's um having a so we've had so essentially, so essentially our feedback that we receive now which we get um, dozens of suggestions actually a day through the app. We have in, in lot. It's you know feedback is so important. So we have lots of places where our little thing that says please give us feedback shows up in the in the product, and we get dozens of suggestions a day, and we keep a tally of those. And between that's the that's the quantitative, quantitative call, depends on how you want to look at it. That you know that's that's data that is coming from you know users providing us with that. But then also we um, reconcile that with our sales data. You know what new content is driving sales. And then lastly speaking, just we last the last component we reconcile what we do next is what our vision is. And so we just know what our own capacity is and that we need to you know build up for one ideal customer profile at a time. But um, I, I, I may have went a little long on that answer, but I hope that was uh, informative. And I, the, the, the most painful part of this all is knowing that we want to get we want to cover every subject area and, and, and do it in the most unique and um, both deep and concise way. And so um it's uh continue you know there's a there's a phrase that mark andreessen is credited with saying you should have um, strong convictions loosely held so we try and really um embrace that of sticking to our process so that we can keep making a 10 out of 10 experience for our current users but being ready to pivot on a dime to whatever we think can um, bring the most value and not be stuck in our ways to not as to not do that you know, you bring up so many great points there. I, I think one thing that I gleaned was just this simple focus on the mission ahead of you and understanding who it is that you're trying to serve. If you can keep that in mind, it keeps you from going down some of the rabbit trails that can happen, right? So I think your story tells that greatly, but also it shows the value of understanding who's on the other end of the product, right? If you don't, very very quickly, you will become obsolete, right? And so keeping that end user, in this case, those pharmacists, starting with community pharmacists and appy students at the center can really help drive those decisions. So um, it's so many great things to glean from that. Well, it, I'm wondering, and I'm guessing our listeners are too, what does your team look like and how do you guys work together to ensure the quality, the accuracy, and the currency of the drug information that is put into Pearl's? Yeah, this is, I'm, I'm smiling as you're asking this because it was such a learning experience. So I had no formal drug information background prior to starting this business. As we talk about our process for how we do our content, I'll say when it comes to like the business building as well, I did not identify, I did not identify a market opportunity in my mind. I did not, I, it wasn't until sometime after starting the business that I ever looked up like, well, how much money is spent on drug references? Like, what's what's the market cap of this market? I those things were not occurring to me. I was thinking to myself, I'm a you know community pharmacist and I'm trying to build myself up my own app, <laughs> to, yeah. and, and, and I'm and I'm just trying to make a cool thing for myself that I want to use. And so, um, when it, so, so that was my expertise. <laughs> um, and so as I mentioned, um. Well, there's been again. There's been a lot of learning along the way, but just to speak specifically to, to, to our process now, 
So we are a you know, peer-reviewed tertiary drug reference. So we take primary um, you know, sources and some other tertiary sources and summarize them into our own curated content. So we are a tertiary, you know, for those, for those DI nerds or for those students who are in DI class, you know, there's primary, secondary, and tertiary resources. We are a tertiary resource. And so we have an in-house team of four pharmacists. And then also we have a pretty large contractor pool, um, more, more than 20 um, mostly pharmacists. There are a few um, physicians and physician associates and nurses as well that are part of our, we call it our clinical advisory pool. And so um, our in-house team, I would describe as generalists. And so we typically serve as primary, typically our in-house team will serve as the primary author on every new monograph or our therapy review that goes into our product. And either prior to or during the process of developing any given subject area, our in-house team will consult with our clinical advisory pool. Um, and then uh, upon completion of the first draft of, of a monograph or a therapy review, um, the, the content will be peer reviewed by um, at least two other individuals, typically either one more of our in-house team or that content matter expert who's in our advisory pool. Um, and then we actually, in terms of how we keep things up to date, this is something like I was it's been a really interesting learning process. So I, I remember thinking in the beginning, like, oh my goodness, how are we going to, or oh, actually, I remember thinking in the beginning, like, I just need to add more drug monographs because we need that in order to have a valuable product. And I'm going to figure out how we keep it up to date later. <laughs> and, and it seems like it's going to be a big task, but uh, we'll deal, we'll deal with that when we get there. And so we, we do keep all of our drug monographs up to date on a, we say, we say as part of our policy, a monthly basis. So what do we tell our end users? It's actually more frequent than that though. Um, and, it was, it was surprising to me, I'd say, how relatively straightforward keeping drug monographs up to date is. And, and actually, I'm going to get into some of the nuance of that, though. The reason, though, is so 80% of any of our drug monographs, the content's coming from the FDA product label. And so once an FDA product label is approved, you know, there's typically not many changes that occur after, after the approval. So sometimes there's new indications that get added to, new, to newer drugs only. And when new indications happen, that typically means that a new efficacy, you know, phase three trials happen. So there may be other downstream things that get changed on the product level too. Like there may be new dosing adjustments that were learned in that latest trial. That So sometimes dosing sections will get adjusted and sometimes safety sections will get adjusted upon a new indication happening. But otherwise, you know, product labels rarely change. Occasionally there's a black box warning added or removed or, or a warning added or removed. Um, and so actually we, we have an automated system where we monitor changes to all product labels every single day. And actually we have a full-time dedicated person who basically their first job of the day is implementing every single FDA product label change and then do whatever's next after that, whether that takes two minutes or, you know, two days to do the FDA product label updates. The rest of the content from our monographs though, comes from clinical practice guidelines. And so, and occasionally primary literature often though, like if, if a landmark trial happens, we typically assume that the takeaway from that trial is going to be incorporated into a guideline recommendation. So we typically won't incorporate landmark trials into our reference list. It'll typically be upon a guideline changing that we will actually update our information to reflect the guideline recommendations. And as you know, most guidelines, you know, asthma, COPD, diabetes, you know, these guidelines update once a year. <laughs> and we know when they, we know when they, you know, we know, we know the second week of December is when the ADA update is going to come out. And so we're, you know, we're ready to be, um, Johnny on the spot with getting that update in. Um, and then, you know, hypertension, heart failure, hypertension, every eight years it changes. And so it's, you know, we, that was, that, that's been relatively straightforward. And I, you know, we learned that through having to do it. 
But this is, you know, right now I've mentioned that we cover a lot of kind of like chronic diseases and um, common, you know, com those commonly prescribed meds. One area that we are preparing ourselves internally to foray into is oncology, where guidelines change every few months. <laughs> and so we have, we have actually, one of the factors that goes into deciding to publish a piece of content or not is the degree of difficulty that we assess that maintainability is going to be. So we actually, for a while, we, ha we added a COVID vaccine table into Pearls, and we actually subsequently pulled it because we found that it was too... We, we, we found that we weren't comfortable with the pace of changes to recommendations in our own ability to keep it perfectly up to date. And then we did marry that with the fact that we actually, we learned from users that they didn't really, you know, they were just going to go right to the CDC's website or the FDA's website. So like it wasn't that high value of a content item and it was actually just creating, you know, too much burden than it was worth. So we pulled it because we didn't think we could maintain our editorial standards for it. So that, that does go into um, us deciding to do a piece of content or not is do we feel that we have the resources as you know, in our company to maintain our editorial standard. Yeah, that that's great information. And I think it gives context to how you guys keep the product up to date. So that's great. You've already mentioned this, but I'd love to ask you a bit more about how you measure the impact or the value of pearls to your users or to the healthcare system. How do you assess value and impact? Um, I don't want to say that we, have a super scientific way to do that. I think we would like to, like, actually, like, I, like, I, or I, let me plead being a student of, of that, or let, not, I don't know if plead's the right word. Let me um, declare being a student of that own endeavor of our own product right now. And because actually, you know, we primarily, I would say the, the two metrics that we use to assess the value of, let me, let me say three metrics actually, to, that we use to assess our value are, Number one, recurring usage retention. So we look at every single week how many users that used the product last week came back and used it again this week. That's actually our North Star value metric. And then actually that tells you two things. So if we say that we have users who come into our product on week one and don't come back on week two, that, that can mean one of two things. That could mean that either we are not providing value, our product is not good enough, or it could mean that we targeted the wrong users. It could mean that last week we somehow a group of users that um, wasn't, was never going to find value from our product. Like actually, let's say right now, Dr. Cole, that we say we sent out an email, say that somehow we got the hold of the emails of every oncologist, you know, on the United States right now. And we sent them an email that said, you all get a free year of pearls. I expect that some number is going to sign up because, wow, cool, free something. That sounds good. I'll check it out. And I expect next week there's going to be a precipitous decline in re returning usage. And we know why. So that means that we did that means that we did a bad marketing effort. And so we, you know, assuming that so, so keeping everything, keeping all we, we do need to keep all of our ducks in a row to properly assess how the job we're doing. So once we assume that we have targeted the right user, which we will do through understanding, you know, where they came from, either from, you know, promotion to this users or, you know, when people sign up for pearls, they, they declare if they're a student of what profession. And so within, so first we ask ourselves, you know, who is the, what, what users are we, are we um, trying to assess the value that we're bringing to them? And let's, so let's, so now let's assume that though, that we've, we're assessing a group of users that we know is who we're trying to serve. Then, like I said, the first metric we look at is recurring usage retention. How many come back week after week after week? Um, 
And then, and if, if not, why not? And we will actively reach out to those users and um, say, um, you know, we would love, just frankly, we would love your feedback on what, the, the, yeah, frankly, you use the word value, and that is the word that we use in all of our communications is how can we provide more value to you in Pearls? Um, and then the next two, I think, are, um, you know, just how else can I put it? They're, you know, the primary business metrics, you know, subscription renewals are, you know, you know, you may come back, but maybe maybe you come back every week, but you don't renew your subscription. Well, clearly, that's a great way of knowing if we're providing value or not as well. Um, and then the last area, though, is actually that I would say the the quantitative or quantitative or qualitative feedback we get on actually, people can submit both ways, they can submit one through five, how much are you enjoying pearls, you know, right now. And so that'd be, you know, I guess a quantitative way, but then also the feedback we get through the qualitative feedback of, um, you know, I want to see this piece of content. And then we do honestly view it as a metric or of evaluating goal of, hey, did we add the content we added last month, you know, throughout the course of the last month, did it align with the actual feedback we were getting um, being submitted to us? What I love about your answer is that even though you you say that you're a student of this, right? And I love that humility that you want to learn more. I think that's a great skill for for anyone to keep up. You have some of these metrics that give you really fast, quick, almost up-to-date, to-the-moment feedback, right, from your users. But you're also looking long-term at other metrics that um, that come into play for your for uh, pearls. So I love that there's this mix of real time information, but also looking at things over the long term. I, that's a, a fascinating thing. Well, if we could, I'd love to turn a little more personal um, related to your story of, of starting pearls. So uh, my first question on that front would be what skills or experiences helped you to successfully get pearls off the ground from the beginning? Yeah, you know, um, I would say that one thing I was talking to the students about today is I said, you know, the message I want to communicate to you all today is how did I go from being a first year pharmacy student sitting in, you know, one of your shoes who thought they wanted to be a community pharmacist to being a person with a PharmD who, you know, founded and operates a web and app company. Um, you know, I guess just speaking in really generic terms, um, essentially during pharmacy school, I discovered this interest in technology through an internship I did at a pharmaceutical company, um, Mylan Pharmaceuticals, which is now Beatrice um, in, in Pittsburgh. They had a digital health focus and educational sessions for us as student interns. That led me to actually reading Steve Jobs' biography kind of on a whim. His The Isaacson biography had come out not long before that time. And while I was reading that book, this was my first time, honestly, being exposed to the tech company world, I guess, or call it Silicon Valley or, you know, the tech industry. I had not had really any interface with it myself other than being a user of the products. And so reading that book actually is maybe as naive as it sounds really inspired me to want to get into this field. And because I, I just, you know, in a nutshell, Steve Jobs and Steve, and Steve Wozniak built a company that created let's just skip all the way forward to the iPhone, which is a product that changed the world. And so I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, are people still doing this? And like, is there any like products or companies I can work at where I can leverage my pharmacy degree to, you know, have some kind of similar impact. And actually that led me to discovering a startup in Minneapolis called MyMeds, which was a medication adherence company. Their founder was a physician named Dr. Uh, Raj Shah, who was a speaker at the APHA annual convention because of a Ted talk he gave on the importance of pharmacists on the healthcare team. And, I remember looking up that company and being like, oh my gosh, they're based in Minneapolis. Maybe I can 
maybe I can help there. I would love to do that. And like, I'm just, I'm speaking in this voice because I was a, you know, just a bright eyed pharmacy student who, you know, it had no idea what was going to be on the other end of the door when I literally drove up to the office and knocked on it and said, hi, I'm Derek. I'm a pharmacy student. I think I like technology. Is there anything I can do to help you? And so it was that experience there that the, the great people at MyMeds who let me be an intern at this. So it was a company that made a website and an app. It was very much like the idyllic startup with, you know, a roller coaster every day of, oh, we, these, this, you know, this whole list of things are going right and this whole list of things are going wrong and we need to problem solve it and we're a small team and everyone's got to wear multiple hats. And I was really enthralled by that environment. And so while I was a third year pharmacy student, I helped out there and I had this habit of bugging the product manager once a week when I would come in and say, Nick, I've been thinking all week about this, you know, our app and you know, here comes the pharmacy student with this idea of the week and here's what I think we should do. And, you know, here, 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 you know, I know it's your full-time job to do this, but here comes the pharmacy student with his idea of the week. And anyway, they, they were very supportive of, of my suggestions, uh, especially because they valued my, you know, knowledge as a pharmacy student and being in healthcare. But at one point, Nick said to me, the, the product manager, he said, Derek, I think you should learn some website coding. He's like, and I was like, why? He's like, I think it would help you give us better suggestions because you would know what an easy thing to do is and what a hard thing to do. He would know if you say... If you come to me with a really compelling reason, you say, Nick, we should change the color of this button to green because here's why. You would know that we can do that because that's only a few lines of code. But if you come back to me with this idea in your notebook for how we should completely change our product, well, Derek, you might convince me you're right, but bad news. We can't, we don't have the bandwidth to do it. <laughs> that's going to take too much. We've already placed our bets. You know, we're already working on, we're six months into this feature that we need to release. We don't have, you know, we, we don't have the ability to place that bet. And so I was like, oh, well, okay, how do I learn coding? And because I assumed that learning programming was this impossible task that I'd have had to have been doing it my whole life or I'd have to have done a computer science degree in order to take it on. One thing I was just talking to the students here about was I think technology is a uniquely opaque domain. To, to, like I think it's like, oh, it's technology, it's scary. But like nobody, what I, sh I showed them a, a meme I made about how basically – Nobody bats their eyes at PharmDs who also get their MBAs or PharmDs who get their JDs or their MPHs. Those are just as difficult of non-pharmacy domains as technology is. They're just, they're just different. That's what they are. And so I, I had I, I, Nick showed me that you can actually just start learning online through different, you know, there's lots of resources and I'm happy to share in the, in the notes some of my um, res favorite resources, but I started learning on Khan Academy. I, I, took, I remember I took an intro to HTML for fifth graders and just quickly became in love with making websites. It was kind of like it scratched the same itch as playing with Legos or playing video games did, which was something I um, you know, enjoyed doing. And so by the time I was graduating pharmacy school, or you know, I, I mentioned I was, you know, this is this this is just preceding that moment I mentioned I was at on my appies when I was like when I was I had learned some website skills and I thought, well, here a really great project for myself to get better at these website skills and um, my own pharmacy knowledge is to try and meld the two and Another thing I told the students is, you know, maybe this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but I like to say I'm a five out of 10 pharmacist and I'm a five out of 10 software engineer, but that allowed me to build pearls. If, if, if I was a 10 out of 10 pharmacist and a zero out of 10 software engineer, I would have known that pearls should exist, but I wouldn't know how to build it. And if I was a 10 out of 10 software engineer and a zero out of 10 pharmacist, I could have built pearls, but I wouldn't know that it was needed. And so being at the you know center of these two domains and bringing together that combined skill is, um, something that I, you know, just this intersection is powerful no matter what domain it is. Oh, so many great things there. Uh, 
just for sake of time, though, I have some other questions I really love to get into. So uh, I'd love to hear what aspects of being an innovator and an entrepreneur have you found most challenging and how have you found others around you to help to complement those areas where you felt like you weren't great at performing? Yeah, this is or it's funny that that sounds like a really simple question you just asked me. But like I had so many just experiences flash in front of my eyes and learnings from that question. In particular, there's there's multiple ways to go about working with others. And the the, the way that I subscribe to, and you, I think you'll understand what I'm saying as soon as I start to explain it. I, at one point, I heard the advice that um, it, or when you first start a business, I think, when you, or when you're by yourself doing something, I think you think that you need to like figure out how to do everything. At least I did. I was maybe because I was an only child too. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I thought that I needed to figure out how to do everything. But I heard this advice that, you know, what you should do is you should identify your strengths and you should double down on your strengths and then, and then collaborate for your weaknesses. So that I found to be a really powerful, you know, just that method for, you know, building my team and, and the people I work with is what am I good at? And let me double down on those. And then also, and then collaborate with people who, who can counterbalance my weaknesses. So, I mean, just even for example, when it comes to developing technology, so my skill set when it comes to coding is on the front end programming, which is the, the user interface. So I, I have a knack for designing and, co and coding the visual aspect of what's, what a user sees when they use a product. But one thing that my brain is less good at is like the database and analytical stuff. And so the, the first um, collaborator on my team is, is my team member named David, who he's a, he's actually also a pharmacist, but he's a, he does full-time software engineering for Pearls. And he has a ton of, he actually, I let me not um, limit the amount of, he's got such a broad array of skills, but he's in particular really good at backend programming. And so he is the, was the first, my first collaborator on Pearls from a technical perspective, um, helping with that weakness. The other thing that as a solo founder of a business like myself, you, you need to know everything, you need to know, you know, there's all kinds of stuff like legal and accounting and business projections. And you just, you have to know something about those areas. But I've, of course, found collaborators to um, help fit our needs there. The, the last thing I want to say on this and um, is some something that I've talked about with, a bit with my friend I know who's um, also a friend of the university here, Tim Albrick. Um, him and I have, you know, financial pharmacist. We've spoken about um, kind of the zone of genius principle, which, which um, maybe you've discussed where, you know, not only should you find the domain that you're good at to work on and double down on it, you should make sure that it gives you energy. So, you know, there, there might be something that you're good at that you find draining. And that is you know, just the same. You should find a collaborator who is good at and finds it energizing. And so that you spend most of your time doing activities that you're both good at and that give you energy. And, and that's your zone of genius. So um, that, that's the principle by which I um, you know, strive to, that's the framework I think about the, you know, operating through and, you know, how well I execute it on any given day or stretch or period is, um, you know, is, is, is uh, what, what uh, I need to focus on. Well, I, what I hear you talking about is fantastic. And we've actually, as a leadership team here at the school, gone through a book called The Six Working Geniuses, where we've even been working on defining where are those zones of work that we just not only excel at, but like you said, find energy from, and how do we leverage the strengths of our team to better accomplish all the things that we're trying to do? So I love that concept. Um, and honestly, that's really changed my view of how I work with 
other collaborators. So I'm glad you brought that up. That's fascinating. I'd love to hear too, what are you most excited about related to emerging trends in pharmacy or um, drug information without giving out all your proprietary work that you guys are trying to maybe start working on and bringing forth through pearls? What are some of those trends that you're really excited about? Yeah, well, I really appreciate you mentioning that and happy to put it all on the table because we need more eyes on it. <laughs> um, and, you know, the one that I, I it, it uh, you know, I'm, we almost, I almost, it pains me to say it because it's it's so cliche to some extent, but it's, it is truly so important is, you know, where does artificial intelligence come into play with this? And so I, I want to, I really, I, I want to talk about this, Dr. Cole, be, and, and tell you about, just share some of my thoughts on this because I, I've been someone I would say who's very in the middle on artificial intelligence, um, not bearish or bullish. I've been very hesitant, like uh, maybe you'd even classify me as a little bit bearish on where AI fits into um, drug information, let's say, in, in healthcare. And that starts from you know. I, so again, I let me very much put myself back in the you know. I'm, I'm going to proverbially put a name tag on it now. It's a, it's a student here. I'm, I'm, let me not, you know, go, to, I'm not an expert on artificial intelligence. I'm a, you know, the best way to describe my, but I, you know, but I have some, I have technical domain expertise. I may I classify myself as a full stack software engineer. I've been writing code. I've been trying things out. I've, you know, I, um, but, but just the same. Um, and, and I, you know, my career has not been super long, but I, so I graduated pharmacy school in 2018 and I remember in 2016, you know, the, the, the artificial intelligence experts will tell you that, you know, that phrase has been around since the middle of the 1900s. And there's always, there always comes and goes new waves of, of, of advancement, let's say, under the umbrella of technology categorized as artificial intelligence. And when I was in pharmacy school, in, around 2016, there was some really big advancements in the technologies un, that, that are labeled under this area of artificial intelligence. And in particular, the uh, again, I'm. Uh, let me speak at a high level here, both because, or let, let me just say that this, everything that's coming out of my mouth may be marked up with red ink by pe people who are deeper experts in this area. But there was an advancement called neural networks in in, in the area in around 2016, which was a new type of uh, called a new type of algorithm or a new type of technology that that was that had yet been um, utilized, and there was some really interesting. Um, things you could do with neural networks. So in particular, the types of, I guess, innovations, like practical use cases that came out of the neural network advancements were technologies for classification of large data sets, um, things called supervised and unsupervised learning, um, optical care, you know, and, and some of the, and, and there was big talk at the time that, uh oh, you know, here comes AI and it's gonna take, you know, it's, it's gonna go from here to, it's gonna go from zero to infinity, you know, over the next few years. That was, that was the talk at the time. But it, you know, the conversation died away. Um, there was a lot of great things that came out of the AI advancements of that era. You know, a lot of the modern self-driving technology that, um, you know, is driving like Tesla's on autopilot and so many other places actually in, in, that have been integrated in society are enabled by the advancements of, of the of the tech advancements of that moment. Um, but here we are again now. So we're we're you know around 2019. We started hearing again, you know, there's, there's this company, OpenAI, and they were developing this new type of, there was, this, you know, whereas 2016, 2015 was the era of the neural network, we are now in the era of the transformer, of the large language model. And so there was this, you know, model released, this product called GP, GGP, 
and they had a playground in OpenAI. And I remember playing around with this in um, like 2019, 2020, and using their really advanced chatbot, you know, in, in their playground. And I, I'm not, I know another friend of you know, in pharmacy academia is uh, Tim Unkst at, at the, uh, the the digital apothecary. And we were, I remember him and I playing around together, and like we were having it right, like right, you know, explain how Adderall works for. Uh, you know, for a fifth grader, just we, we picked a drug and said, you know, explain it in simple terms. And it, you know, did this funny thing that, you know, like Adderall, you know, messes with or interacts with neurotransmitters and makes you feel good. And it was like, oh, wow, like that's kind of like, wow, it was almost, you know, you we were getting pretty excited about the fact that it was like almost kind of right, but we still couldn't really find a practical use case for it. Anyway, these technologies have been advancing over the last, you know, you know, three, four years here really rapidly. And especially with the, on, with the, the, um, the, the product chat GPT, which came out at the end of 2022 and into this year has really taken over the world. And I remember, you know, playing around with it quite a bit again at the beginning of this past year and still, you know, and, and see, and, you know, and I'm getting kind of like, Oh, like, why is everyone saying it's going to take over the world? Like, let me try it. Let me see this thing. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, I think I'm, you know, you know, especially as a, someone who's a pharmacist, I'm, you know, I have all these subconscious concerns about how it's going to take over my job in the world. And so I'm kind of looking at it through this kind of jaded lens, but really, you know, okay, well, I am a believer that like, you know, you got to square yourself with reality. So if, if this, like, how good is this? Let's, let's really check it out. And so in the drug information space, I, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to see if, oh, can this write monographs for us? Or where can we, where can this automate our own workflow? And just really wasn't, you know, was finding that it wasn't quite good enough to the point where I was comfortable saying, Oh, great. Okay. I'm, I actually think that anyone who's doing this is kind of wasting their time. And, and actually our, our key insight is that it's not going to do anything anytime soon here. Um, but actually I, I just want to speed fast forward that I would say over the last few months, we have really found ways to use these large language model technologies in, in how we do content development and drug information for pearls. And I, I want to talk about a couple of those use cases quickly. And, but, I'll, but first I want to talk about a framework for, for thinking about where, ChatGPT. Let's let's use the word ChatGPT just as a blanket term for all these AI tools. Okay, where can it be used in healthcare today and in drug information? And well, you need to start with fundamentally what type of a tool is it? And so, it is a generative AI. You give you feed ChatGPT some text, and what it tries to do is it tries to give you what it thinks should be the text that should come next after the text that you gave it. You give it, hey, what's up? It gives you not much. How are you doing? Because that's what that's what should come next after that text. You give it metformin dosing. It gives you, you know, some version of metformin dosing that it thinks should come next. And but each time that you do it, as people know, it gives you a slightly different answer. Or if you ask the question, if you if you put the text that you feed it, if you do it in a slightly different way, it'll give you a slightly different response. Or it actually, might give you a wildly different response. And so it is a generative technology. Now let's let's compare and contrast that with a um, definitive technology, and there's a, there's a different word I'm blanking on, but like let's take a calculator here. Okay, so if you give a calculator two plus two, it will always give you four. Uh, declarative, you know, it'll always give you four. If you give ChatGPT, hey, what's two plus two? It'll probably get four every time because that's really easy. But the point is, it it, it theoretically could give you something other than four, and so it's not a good tool to use for very specific or for declarative answers, I guess, for, for um, definitive answer. And so that's why when pharmacists log in and use ChatGPT and ask it, what's the dose of metformin? 
you're probably going to get an answer that you're not fully impressed with because it needs to be something that's very spot on. And so one thing that we've found it useful for over the last several months, and, I, and I'm really excited to see, again, first off, things have moved so quickly that I'm not super confident as I'm sitting here that it's not going to be get continue to get more and more accurate to the point where it's, um, it, you know, Dr. Cole, I know you're, you know, you're a pediatrics expert. You know, if I, if I asked you some questions about pediatric pharma, pharmacotherapy, you're probably going to give me a good answer. You know, you're going to give me a generative answer. Um, it's something that's, you know, if I ask you it today and I ask you tomorrow, you might say it in a slightly different way. Um, but you are trained enough to this point that, <laughs> you know, I can trust your answer. Um, and so I'm not going to say that ChatGPT doesn't have the ability to get that well trained in certain areas. Um, but there's actually use cases in healthcare where there's multiple right answers. And I think it, and, there, and it doesn't, and that you don't need a precise answer. So for example, you might say, what, how, hey, ChatGPT, how should I explain to a patient how to take their metformin? I would, okay, let's well, What's the dose of metformin, you know, for a patient with, you know, an adult with renal disease? You know, there's a, there's actually a very specific answer for what that should be likely. Again, again I know we have, there's clinical nuance, but there's a very specific answer. If I say, how should I educate a patient on how to take their metformin? I would argue there's 20 right ways to do that. Um, and so that's a use case where there's multiple right ways to do it. So, so a generative answer is potentially more applicable to that use case. And again, in, in practice, and in, in thinking about how to like say that to a patient might take some time to, you know, to think about. And so ChatGPT can save you the time of, hey, give me 10 different ways I could say it and I can easily pick one. So there it can cut time in a, in, a, in an area where there um, is multiple right possibilities. Um, so I think that's a great use case. And, and then anyway, just th anyway, thinking about use cases in healthcare where th this tool fits is, is something that I'm spending a lot of time, you know, looking forward on. Um, the, the other really interesting use case we've found for Pearls, or for, sorry, for ChatGPT, I'll just say, is doing peer review of content. Now that's a very loaded word. And it's not, and ChatGPT doesn't serve as our official peer reviewer, but let me just give you an example. So we've written, let's say we write a paragraph on how type one diabetes diagnosis, you know, is, is performed for a healthcare provider. And if I drop that into ChatGPT and I say, pretend that you are a, you know, wherever you give it a prompt that says, basically give it a prompt that says, check this, it will provide a bunch of feedback and it, and it'll provide, it, it'll provide suggestions that you can take or leave. And so it just, it just simply, it only adds value. It doesn't hurt if, if you know what the area is. It, it, and so it's given us suggestions like, hey, that's a really, what you just wrote sounds accurate to me, but like, have you thought about saying this, this sentence in this other way? And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, you're right. That does sound way more clear. Let me just do that. Um, or it'll say like, did you, maybe you should add a little more context on this part of the thing you're explaining. And I'll just been like, sometimes I've been like, no, sometimes I've been like, yeah, you're right. That is a really good thing to add in here. And then if it's something that's, you know, maybe a bit more advanced then okay, maybe we need to go find another reference to source this from and double check, you know, where we're, where, where we're getting this new, if this adds a new dimension to the content we're writing. But I've found that using it, I think people using it, um, not as the first draft, but as the second draft or, you know, as the, as the, as the second person that comes in is interesting. And so I can see, you know, I'm sure we, um, we, we can go on, but, but those have been two just really interesting use cases that, um, and, and, you know, that have made it so that I've in some ways come around, come more around on, what 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 the current cycle that's in front of us is and also just the way that 2023 has went from you know from january to, to here we are in september or october 2nd you know the way things have 
changed over this last 10 months has been at such a pace that it really makes you pause and and want to hold any definitive conclusions that you may have or strong opinions that you you know that, that thing I mentioned before about having strong opinions loosely held now is the time more than ever to have your head on a swivel and be ready to keep your eyes open I guess for um because uh, for for what um what may be what may be possible well I, I couldn't agree with you more that we need lots of great minds thinking about how we properly use these technologies uh, to better the health of people around us and better the things that we do in healthcare. So let's uh, let's do it together, right? Let's all put our minds to this and and see what happens with it. Well, Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. I want to finish by just giving you an opportunity to tell our listeners where they can find a little bit more out about Pearls and the different things that you guys are doing. Yes. Th- oh, thank you so much. And yeah, please, anyone who's interested in anything that we talked about here today, um, I would love to have a conversation, you know, one-on-one ourselves. And so please find me on LinkedIn. I'm I'm the only Derek Borkowski, comma, farm D. Um, you know, whether it's you know tomorrow or 10 years from now, I'd love to be connected to have a follow-up conversation. And then if you want to learn more about Pearls, yes, we are at um, pearls.com, P-Y-R-L-S.com. And also we have a really fun following on uh, social media. So if you come check us out on Instagram, we are at Pearls, where we share drug facts. Uh, would love to connect with you in, a, in any of these ways. And thank you again. All right. Thanks, Derek. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, we may have to have you back on again just to talk about some of this new technology as it advances in the future. So again, many thanks and um, all the best as you continue to innovate with Pearls. Appreciate it. You have been listening to Disrupt, a podcast from the Cedarville University Center for Pharmacy Innovation. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe and share this podcast with others. Thanks for listening.